That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Jason Benetti, and my dilemma is whether or not I should travel with duct tape to make sure that the hotel blinds or curtains close all the way. Oh, my God. This is totally a problem that I have. In fact, it probably would have ended up being a South Bitch Sessions in the future. I cannot sleep with light anywhere. When I get to a hotel room, I immediately unplug the alarm clock. I put pillows in front of anything that has a light on it, and I silently curse at the fire detector on the ceiling, whatever that's called, because they always have that one blinking light that you can do nothing about. This one hotel I stay at in Miami every single time, the drape doesn't cover both sides. There's a there's a tiny sliver of light on both sides. And as soon as it becomes morning, I'm inevitably like rolling around, putting various pillows and sheets above my head to try to block it out. So I 100 percent know where you're coming from, Jason. And it never occurred to me even to bring duct tape to try to fix this. That is brilliant. In fact, I think this might be the first time that the commission doesn't have to fix anything because you fixed it for yourself. Yes, you should bring duct tape and potentially also some very opaque, very non-see-through material with which to duct tape and hang over lengthy spaces because sometimes the duct tape might not be able to reach the full gap. So I think I think together we have come up with the solution, which is not practical at all, but it requires packing duct tape and some sort of opaque material, maybe buy an extra set of the blackout curtains and then cut them in various sizes, bring them with you. This is all sounding now like I'm a complete lunatic, but uh, I'm into this idea, Jason. So I think between the two of us, we have fixed this. The commish has spoken. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. And if you don't catch it live, you can listen to select segments that are posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. So go subscribe. That's what she said. This week's guest on That's What She Said is Jason Benetti. He's the television play-by-play announcer for the Chicago White Sox and does other play-by-play broadcasting for ESPN, including football, baseball, and basketball. He is scheduled to do over 220 game broadcasts this year alone. We had a fascinating conversation. He has cerebral palsy and talked about the ways that being different has affected him in various parts of his life, from childhood to job interviews to the job he does now working in Major League Baseball. Um, we also connected on how it is to be reminded of your differences, even in moments when you don't feel any different, um, how he at times felt like a sort of novelty act among his classmates and his peers and learned later in life to accentuate the differences instead of worrying about them. I really love this conversation. Brilliant dude. Fascinating listen. And of course, has just the voice you're looking for from a broadcaster. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Benetti. That's what she said. So I'm super excited for this conversation. I have heard a lot about Jason. We've never actually met in person, um, but I've I've read a lot and heard so much, and we have such a combined influence and sphere of people um, that I'm sure we know so many people in common. And your story is a fascinating one, so I'm excited to get to know it. And usually I start with childhood and, and what kind of kid people were, but I want to start even younger because obviously um, when you were born is when a lot of very uh, formative things happened in your life. I want to start even before when your dad and mom were at the White Sox game, because this is a precursor to later in life, the job that you do. Um, and, and somehow your dad ended up in the hospital from a trip to Comiskey Park. 
Yeah, so they were walking, I believe, to the ballpark. They hadn't gotten to the ballpark yet. Uh, this this has to be your first interview that started with a falling piece of a building. It, uh, it is. I, yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're we're unicorns already. Um, <laughs> my parents are are walking to the ballpark as the story goes, and a piece of a building falls down, uh, as evidently it's prone to do and hits my dad, and he ends up in the hospital. So as I believe the story goes, they never ended up making it to the game. Uh, and then uh, he ends up in the hospital while my mom uh, was was pregnant with me, and he's okay. He ended up being totally fine, uh, no real major chronic issues after that. But uh, it's like a reverse omen. I think like something really bad happened on the way to a White Sox game and then something really good happened uh, for me and and my parents uh, on the way to White Sox games later on. So I assumed it was Comiskey Park that was falling apart, but it was just a neighboring building. So, so we can't actually blame the Sox. Is, what, what's funny about that is I actually didn't I, – I knew he was in the hospital. I knew a piece of a building fell off, but I didn't know what building it was. And right when I got the White Sox job – uh, one of the reporters in town had talked to my parents, and I got a text from the reporter who said, uh, your, your dad told me the story about getting hit with the brick at Comiskey. <laughs> and so I, I got I got this. I woke up in the morning. I got this text. I called my dad. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I'm going to get fired before I've even called a game. You are insane. And he was like, no, 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 it, it didn't. No, it didn't fall off of Comiskey. Like, we're not suing the White Sox. <laughs> it was on the way to a game. So I actually thought that was the case as well. Uh, as the story went, but it no longer uh, it, it no longer scares me like that. It was that right. wasn't the actual story, but the text I got from the reporter, I was like, "Did I not know that this happened?" <laughs> Either that, or your dad changed the story when you got the job. Because yeah, I mean, a, you, a nearby but, building, works. but an act of subterfuge wouldn't be out of the question for him because he grew up a Cubs fan. Ah. Smart man, very smart man. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. I don't know. Yeah, we, yeah, we were, we're so off, pleasant we're for the off first on this two minutes right here. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what's happened. Um, so your dad was in the hospital when you were born, right? He was still recovering. Yeah, so I was born. I was very premature. Uh, you know, again, he ended up being fine long term, but yeah, he still had some lingering effects and was being treated and all of that. And then here I come, and uh, you know, it was it was a little touch and go for a while, and uh, we all ended up living happily ever after, though. <laughs> So, so yeah, 10 weeks premature, and then as they're treating you in the NICU, you contracted a virus and a lung disorder, which I cannot pronounce, um, and so you were on an oxygen machine, and um, at the time, were, were your parents informed as to what might be going on? Was there a fear that you wouldn't make it? What were, what were they being told? Yeah, I... I uh, this is the part that I'm reminded all the time... Uh, when I'm being a bad son every once in a while that they lived through and I did, <laughs> but I didn't remember it. You know, I mean, that's for me, that's the part about people with disabilities um, that had trouble when they were young that is easy to forget when we get caught up in our daily grind is that they were there when doctors said not to be over dramatic, but like there was a chance that that I wasn't going to make it. 
And that happens for a lot of kids who have a lot less means than even my family did. And they were squarely middle class. But there, there are so many kids who go through that and so many parents who don't really know how to deal with it. And, and my parents hadn't had any other kids and they still haven't. And so for them to always be so wonderful about even through later surgeries up until age 12 or so to always be there and always take me to appointments and always be at my side. Like I, I have a tendency to even forget that on a day to day basis. And it takes truly special people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they believe that your cerebral palsy was caused likely by the virus and the lung disorder. Um, And so at a young age, there's so many varying degrees of of CP. Um, What did they anticipate for your future? Was there question marks in certain areas or was it clear that there were just limited parts of your physical body that were affected? Yeah, I I ended up, uh, they had to have had some questions about exactly what would end up happening because I went through a lot of uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy and that sort of thing at the Rehabilitation Institute in Chicago. Uh, Spent some time there, spent a lot of time with uh, a doctor uh, named Luciano Diaz who's still in Chicago and still treating kids with CP and in fact has uh, uh, kid who he's treating now who is a White Sox fan and we're going to meet at some point later this year who has CP and uh, may want to become an announcer, which is which is pretty cool. But this guy was one of those people who was like, we're going to do more. We're just going to do more. We're going to keep pushing. And I was so lucky to have doctors and people who basically said, don't be complacent. And so I don't, I don't know what those questions were specifically at the point uh, it happened, but I do know based on how much therapy and how many surgeries I went through early on that there was a lot of variance in the way I mean, I know now, especially there's a lot of variance in the way CP affects people, right? Like right. I, I hit the CP lottery because my speech pattern is, you know, as, as good as can be. Uh, I don't have any speech impact in terms of what happened to me and the portions of my brain that don't fire exactly like other people's. So, you know, it's, it's a wide ranging disorder, certainly. Yeah. You mentioned the surgeries. So I read at some point you had these sort of Forrest Gump leg braces. <laughs> um, this was after starting out in a wheelchair. I mean, it's second or third grade, right? That's a very important age in terms of identity and fitting in. And it means so much to feel like you're just one of the kids. What did that do for you in terms of of how you saw yourself uh, compared to your classmates? Was it was it tough to to move through the world at that age? Yeah, I was kind of a novelty act uh, <laughs> because you're in a wheelchair and people want to push you around, but not in like the bullying sort of like, hey, I'm going to push right. you around sort of way. Like, I want to be in charge of Jason today because I get right. to operate a motorized this thing vehicle. has wheels. Yeah, like that's fun. Uh, but I, I think I think there are a couple things that, that flow from probably having a disability or that that go for anyone who isn't quote unquote normal when they're growing up. And and I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it, but there's this musical Dear Evan Hansen mm-hmm. uh which is about uh, a kid who is socially awkward and he ends up pretending that he's friends with this other kid who ended up committing suicide. But there, there's uh, one song in the show called waving through a window. 
and the uh, the first lyric is uh, I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turned the key. And and I think the purpose of that line is for people who are different. It's a very easy thing to want to uh, shield yourself and protect yourself and, and kind of just be the smart kid or whatever you're known for. And then you end up not taking risks because you're kind of sick of being different. Right. And you, you spend time trying to fit in. And, you know, I think I think a lot of people do that in high school, but I think that was part of it for me was like, you, you look for ways that you can be like other people. And then you get into a performance space like we are as announcers, especially play by play. Like it's, it's a little less reporter than it is uh, entertainer sometimes. And you realize later on that you do need to find the thing that makes you, you rather than trying to protect it and just be the normal kid. Yeah. It's amazing how, hard it is to tell kids that later on it's going to benefit them to be special and unique and different in so many ways. Like it's because you can't at that age understand it. Anything that makes us different. I was super, super tall. Right. And so I was insecure about that. Um, you know, or, or people who are incredibly gifted at something that isn't cool in terms of cliches, um, end up being wildly successful at it. And, and it's hard to do when you're a kid to understand that stuff. So, I know that your sense of humor is a big part of your work. I mean, some people, it's just a natural thing, but you feel like you in part cultivated that as a way to connect to kids as you were going through some of the stuff that made you feel different. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to say that, like everything in performance is a defense mechanism, but I do think that there is some, you know, you, you do what you do. Some people have a brilliant golf swing, and so a lot of people want to golf with them because they're fun to golf with. The The only golf that I play involves, like, windmills and clowns. <laughs> uh, oh, holy moly is calling you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I just heard about that. I had a group text thread with some of my college roommates telling yeah. me about that because we yeah. played a lot of mini golf. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually... I, I've thought a lot about this in the past couple of years because I've grown obsessed with uh, John Mulaney, the comedian, yeah. because I think his delivery and his timing are just so fantastic and impeccable. But I I grew up uh, listening to like George Carlin and Dennis Leary and Robin Williams and Adam Sandler and just a wide uh array of like Dennis Miller. I loved his books and they were ultra erudite to the point of like repulsion sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I liked watching people make people laugh and it turned, I, I was always a very shy kid early on and who knows the reasons for that, whether it's disability driven or otherwise. Uh, but at some point when I realized, Hey, let's not just be shy. It, I started truly studying comedians and performers and people who read books on tape and actors and things like that. And I just, I love seeing something truly land. Like I love a really good SNL sketch because it takes so much to make it really stick and pay yeah. off. I imagine you loved the uh, lobster Les Mis as much as I did when Mulaney was on a couple oh times Oh my gosh. Ago. It was perfection. It like was like Lawset, the, yes. the kid. That's so yes. amazing. It was so good. Oh, it was magical. Time for a quick break. And then more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. 
Every one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. While the Tissot PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tissot at us.tissotshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide. That's what she said. So you're growing up and and you loved sports. You didn't play, but you could uh, you could watch and you got invested in the people who were calling the games. And even back in elementary school, you wrote a letter about wanting to grow up to be the White Sox announcer. So what was it that connected you to sports? Were your parents? I mean, you mentioned that they were on the way to the, the White Sox game. Were they particularly invested in watching it all the time? So it just became a part of of your life. They they were. I, first of all, you should know that I also wrote a little essay in elementary school that said, I want to work with Bill Walton in Maui, and then crumpled it up and threw it against the wall. <laughs> uh, so nobody ever saw that one. No, I uh, my, my parents uh, loved going to games. We went to mostly Sox games, a couple Cubs games here and there. But uh, it was always on, and and I loved playing video games, and it was right when, like, EA Sports was rising with the Madden games, and Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball was out through Nintendo and all that stuff. So I got to know the players on those games, and then uh, PC games and things like that, that you could simulate seasons and whatnot. But we'd watch the Sox every night, basically, and went on a road trip when I was young to Philadelphia and Baltimore and Toronto, and I just kind of grew to love being at the park and and it was there to provide uh entertainment every night yeah so you grow up and you're calling games from your bedroom and you're writing you know class assignments about how you want to be i sound super cool don't i no honestly it sounds very it sounds very familiar The, uh, the number of of male exclusively Radio voices and and call and play by play voices. I know that that's how they became invested. You know, listening, hiding under their covers with the radio when their parents told them to go to sleep and stuff like that. It's a very common theme that I've heard. And um, whether it's cool or not is up to you to decide. But um, the memorizing of statistics, I would argue, probably not cool to anybody, but useful, right? And and helped you sort of hone your craft. Um, and then in junior high, you started running an NCAA tournament pool. Um, so. Was this also something that connected you to people? And was there any part of you that felt left out by not being able to always um, actually perform and, and compete with them? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I always loved – I was very competitive at things that I could even dream of being competitive at. Like playing me in ping pong when I was a kid, even in high <laughs> school, or darts or pool or foosball or whatever like, – Parlor game uh, rage was definitely my jam. <laughs> I like, still have it, again. so you don't have to say that past tense. Unless yeah, it's no, true. you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> that is that is that's terribly insightful. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, no, anything I'm competitive at that I even have a reasonable chance of winning at. Uh, it's it's going to get a little dark and stormy. So yeah, I mean, I I. I I can't say that I ever really wanted to play because I liked the strategy of it. I liked watching it uh, more than I enjoyed playing it. But, like, I had a hoop in my driveway, so I'd play with friends and uh, play wiffle ball in the backyard. So it wasn't really organized, but I, I, would, I was definitely fairly uh, – I, I can't say athletic, but, like, 
there was a definite intent to get outside and play as right. much as possible. So, yeah, I mean, I, I loved sports uh, for the team concept, certainly. So in high school, you were in uh, the concert band. You played the tuba, and then uh, you ended up calling the halftime performances <laughs> by the marching band. Um, you also were a part of the radio station at your high school, uh, one of the biggest ones in the country. So presumably, you know, nearing professional levels or at the very least helping approximate what it might be like to work in that business. Um, and, and, and I read something in an interview you did where you talked about immediately loving being behind the microphone because you said nobody sees me. The inhibitions, whichever existed, they're all gone. So at that age, even in high school, as much as you had found all these ways to connect, there was something about just being yourself as a, as a personality and as a human being without having to navigate the physicality of anything that spoke to you? Yeah, and I didn't know it then, right? I mean, I, I just said, oh, this is fun. That was the extent of it. I wasn't that analytical as a kid, but as I examined it further, it was this thought of, hey, uh, I never knew this feeling before, I guess, where somebody wasn't giving me a look or wondering if I could do X or making a comment or just reacting oddly. And it was like, wow, I, I can just be whole is how I would describe it. I, 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 it was intoxicating. And that is uh, both lovely and also a little sad that I didn't realize it sooner. But we don't get to choose when we realize things, I think. Right. And so for... For me, it was uh, it, it wasn't like a safe place. It was like a place where I'm like, oh, I can I can pioneer. You know, if I threw everything I could, like there's this there's this runner up in Oregon who's a student at U of O who has CP and mm. he's this. Uh, I've seen him. Yeah. Yeah. Got a Nike Justin contract, Gallegos, right? I think, is his name. Yeah. Uh, he's this. He's a. He's pretty much a world class athlete. And if I threw myself at that, maybe, maybe, right? But I found this thing where it was like, oh, the starting point is exactly where everyone else is. That's intriguing to me. Yeah. Yeah, to not start at a deficit. You also talked about, um, you said it in an interview, people see me and to them my IQ immediately drops, right? Because people see a physical difference and then presume or guess at what might be other differences. How frustrating is that for you as someone who comes across, and I presume to be quite intelligent, and uh, probably from a very young age you were aware of people either talking down to you or not treating you as equal, which would explain why wanting to be in a radio booth or behind a microphone would be so thrilling. Yeah, that sucks, right? Like, just, yeah. Just hearing I mean, you say that. It's like being a woman. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I, just assume you're an I idiot. very much, I can't, <laughs> like, empathize might be the wrong word, but I almost mean it, right? Like, right. I empathize with the feeling of knowing that you're getting a different reaction as the than the average person, and you're being told that what you're seeing isn't there. And the insidious part is that you start seeing it even when people don't mean it. It takes your brain and it twists it and it puts you on the hunt for it. And then you overcorrect sometimes. But the fact that we're even talking about that, right, is insidious in the first place. Right. And, and my reaction has always been get really frustrated at first and then do something about it. Like be strategic, talk to somebody, call a friend, 
make a better tape next time, whatever it is, like just intellectualize it, but in an emotional way. But yeah, it, it, it sucks to think that I thought that too. I mean, I, I now know that first impressions aren't the only thing, but think about like, I was just, I, I'm, I was thinking about this the other day because I've, I've started to read a little bit more about first impressions and, and where they come from and how they're founded. But think about like the, when, when people say, oh, top 10 things that you have to do to really kill it in a job interview. It's like walk in with a confident stride. No, right. sorry. And then make great eye contact. I ah, can't do that. Right, but because one, you have, you have um, a lazy eye, right? Yeah, yeah. I have For an those eye who don't drift. know. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, there's a certain way that if I look in the camera, I don't think people know. And I, I almost know immediately if I've, uh, you know, looked the wrong way because I get a bunch of tweets about it. And if I, if I do it where it kind of conceals it and I use uh, my eye that's closest to my partner – to make contact with my partner and the other eye to make contact with the camera. I really don't get anything, especially if it's at an angle. Right. But what, what it comes down to is uh, it, it's, it sucks, but it's also like everybody has a thing. And if we channel our energy to say, okay, but how can I overcome it? That's valuable anyway to everybody. So I think, I've had this predisposition to this growth mindset that I didn't even mean to have, but was almost a response to the way the world perceives who I am. Yeah, that's, that's so spot on, because I think if you get too into your head about the way you're being perceived, even in moments when someone isn't applying some sort of filter to you, then you can go down the rabbit hole and, and self-destruct. If instead you sort of take that, remind yourself to temper your expectations so that you aren't always assuming that, and then find the moments when it's happening and push back on it, and in the moments when it might be happening but you're not sure, just plow right through it and say, okay, this could be happening, but I'm going to keep working hard until it's not an issue anymore. And it's easier said than done, but I, I do wonder how you got to a moment or a point where you were able to say, Either I don't care if this is the impression people are getting, I'm going to prove them wrong by the time it matters, or you just said, I need to be strong enough that I don't constantly consider what they might be thinking or saying and instead just keep moving forward. Yeah, it's also, I think what it came down to is I started to understand the nuance of performance and of just perception. I, I am go like, I am different. I am going to draw some sort of attention from certain people. They are going to think things. It's not a referendum on who I am. I used to get mad because I had forgotten that that's who I was and I'm being reminded of that. Instead, right. now it's, hey, I know this is coming and I know how to deal with it. Like I've created mechanisms for myself to just understand that when things are different, people are going to react to it. It's a very human unintentional and frankly typically without malice function of the brain yeah man that's so interesting because it's it's really not the same as being a woman or something but i i constantly am being reminded of that when i had forgotten and i thought it was just you know talking to people 
and then and then your people react to you in a way that isn't fitting with what you've just said or done, and you're brought back to oh, this is how you see me instead of as a person who's having a conversation, which is really frustrating. Right, um, and people don't realize. Yeah, they that, they don't that when yeah. they bring that up, like there is research that says if you put women in a room to take a, a math test, and right before the test, you remind them even that they're women basically, and they're not supposed to do well in math, their scores will drop hmm. notably. Hmm. That, that sca- I just read that like a week and a half ago. That scares me because I now need to counterbalance even the small thought that I'm going to get sped up heart yeah. rate wise or start thinking less of myself when somebody brings it up. Yeah. Man, that's so interesting. So, you, so you go to Syracuse and you and you continue to study broadcasting. And the goal at that point is still the White Sox, or have we have we changed our minds since elementary school? Yeah, like uh, you know, when you're in elementary school, you say you want to be the thing that you're that's in front of you all the time. I think <laughs> right. And so for me, it was, hey, I just want to do games at a high, a high level. And when I say high level, I don't even mean like X place, X company, whatever. I just wanted to be good at it. I wanted to prep hard and I wanted to do it the right way and all of that stuff. So I got to do all these games in college and I ended up running the campus radio station and I was a horrible boss in a lot of ways. And cause <laughs> Why? Then, you wait, know, wait, wait, Why were you a bad boss? No, I... I was like, we had quizzes before our meetings about like Syracuse sports because I thought people were slacking and how much they were prepping for things. Like I, I, I it was, I, I had a way that I thought people should do it. And I was, I was just bad. <laughs> it got ugly. <laughs> you know, you, you're finally good at something and you, you're, you're given a taste of power that gets ugly right, in every right. way. Well, also, I think if you're a very uh, a high-achieving uh, control freak, sometimes the best jobs for you do not involve managing others who are constantly disappointing. Uh, yeah, that's... and people with <laughs> ambition who are 20. Right, right, exactly. It's a Petri dish. Right, agreed. Um, so you graduate college, you, you, uh, you, you work in a couple different places calling games for minor league affiliates and other out- outlets, and you inexplicably, while you're presumably on en route to the, the job that you've always dreamed of, decide to go to law school. Can you explain this? Uh, so I was always fairly argumentative. Uh, and We have so much in common, Jason. Yeah, I really this think is, we would be uh, good friends. <laughs> I, this podcast could be like uh, seven years, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I decided on a minor league trip at some point, like... Uh, I need a little bit more education in my life. I like learning. I enjoy it. I, I want to pursue it further. I like being around it. And Wake Law, Wake Forest Law School was so amazing about me missing class here and there to do minor league baseball games. I sent in a CD of my work with my law school application just so they knew like I'm weird and whatever. And they knew what they were getting or I'm into. I'm talented, and this is worth giving me time off for. Yeah, like, hey, this is a passion of mine. I, I, I need to still do this if I'm going to go to school. The, the hope was, hey, I can, um, I can go to a school where I'm doing games. So I had actually applied to law school at George Mason, and I interviewed at one point for their radio job. 
and it was the year that they went to the final four, oh, wow. <laughs> but I didn't get the job. Uh, and it was like, oh, that would have been fun. Uh, decent, yeah. But the, the idea was, hey, can I do both? They afforded me that chance. And I'm so glad I did it because some of the concepts of talking to a jury and having them see things the way you present them apply so directly to what we do as play-by-play announcers. It's it's actually, it was unexpected and, and glorious. And what was your intention when you went there? It wasn't presumably to shore up your debating skills for, for on-air broadcasting. I imagine there was some other end goal in, at the time. Yeah, it was, it, frankly, it was just learning. It was, I, I want to know all about this. And it wasn't a backup plan, but it was also, if I can add value to my life while doing the thing that I still love, rather than just, you know, spending another four hours on the same thing just because I have free time, can I find this structure that helps me understand the deeper meanings of why things exist as they do? Uh, and can I, do I have another skill that communication applies to? And, and uh, the law ended up being something I could marshal uh, along with communication. So you also, while going to law school, working for the for uh, the many different broadcasting jobs, you took a side job with an institute at Syracuse working on disability policy research. There's obvious reasons why you might be interested in that, but was that something you wanted to pursue as a job? No, I that was. Um... I, I had gotten in touch with this uh, Burton Blatt Institute um, through somebody I knew at Syracuse, and I wanted to scale back my minor league baseball innings. So I had worked in Syracuse before as kind of a number two announcer, and I was traveling just a little bit in 2006, and I called the guy who was doing games at the time, uh, Bob McElligot, and the GM, John Simone, and I said, uh, you know, if, if I came back, could I do some games while well, I did – the uh, the policy research, and they said, yeah. So I, I, it was it was much more an opportunity for me to dabble in something that was that was interesting to me. Not that it was going to be a career, but to also scale back by innings a little bit and and uh, get a chance to apply the legal education somewhere that I thought would be interesting. And then Bob ended up leaving actually August first that year, and I took over for him. He got the Blue Jackets job on radio. Uh, he was, he was working for Columbus at the time and still is. And, uh, I, I ended up, I was trying to minimize my innings and then I ended up taking over for him. And I, I was the lead announcer there until 2014. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, better help online counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, grief, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off your first month just by using the discount code SPAIN. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com slash SPAIN. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. BetterHelp.com slash Spain. That's what she said. So let's fast forward. So you yeah. um, 
You also served as an adjunct professor at Syracuse teaching television broadcasting. Um, and, and you're doing all the things that are pushing you towards a career uh, in, in exactly what you want to do. What do you think the, the sort of breakthrough moment was from being at the minor league level and, and, and getting the occasional bigger game to actually you know, moving up to the White Sox level and doing work for ESPN and other major outlets? I think it was uh, I think it was a combination of things. I think first of all, the the people who I looked up to always told me that I could do it at a high level. Like Sean McDonough called me when I was a senior in college. I had sent him a tape, and he basically said, "You can be really great at this." And I will always thank him for that and and care for him for doing just that among the other things he's done for me as a friend. And Ian Eagle has been so honest and so wonderful to me and so kind-hearted, just basically saying, like, you're going to get there. It's just a matter of when you get there, will you slay it? And it was them preparing me for those moments in terms of both self-belief and also just aiming higher that kind of got me there. But if, if if there was a big moment, it was, you know, Chris Farrow, who's no longer with the company at ESPN, giving me one game in 2011. It was Albany, Syracuse, uh, the preseason NIT. And, and um, I had talked to him a little bit. My agent had talked to him a little bit. And Chris was like, all right, we'll give him a shot. And that game, it was a Syracuse game, so I know them well. Uh, and Tim Welsh was my analyst. And I know, and I don't think Tim would ever say this, but I know Tim called somebody or a couple people and basically said, uh, you should give him more games. Yeah. And uh, I will always thank him for that. I, I met John Wildhack before he left for Syracuse to become the AD. And I've said this multiple times to John, but I, because uh, I know what he did uh, and he really won't say that he did. But <laughs> uh, a couple years after that first game, and I was doing assorted basketball here and there, I went and met John and we spent about half an hour in his office. And he, I, I, like two days later, my agent got a phone call and there was a contract offer for a certain amount of games from ESPN. And I know that John uh, did something. I know he made a phone call. Uh, and I'm so appreciative that I've had so many people go out on limbs for me and say, Hey, give them a run. Like, just because, and and I know they're not saying this explicitly, right? But it takes a special person to say, hey, this guy who doesn't kind of look like he belongs on TV, do that. (laughs) And, and, you know, I know John did something because within 48 hours, I had an offer. It's pretty quick. That's that's quite a turnaround. Um, So tell me about your your very first White Sox game and the nerves, the excitement, um, what it felt like to achieve something that you had had dreamed of and had even written down. Yeah. uh, When I got the phone call that I was actually getting the job and it was like a three month process to get interviewed. I, I, my parents cried and I cried Mm. and uh, then we go to spring training and I had met with Steve Stone, my broadcast partner for the White Sox. And we hit it off right away over dinner. And he's been so good to me and so kind to me and so welcoming. And then we sit down and it was basically from go. It was an awesome partnership. And I sat down in that chair and he sat down and we both just decided to go together. 
And it, it's basically like a great improv show yeah. where everybody's everybody's just growing the theme. Uh, it was almost immediate that it was like, oh, the, oh, okay, I belong here. Like this works. And I don't say that in a cocky way. I say that in a, I know a couple years before that I wouldn't have been secure enough to do it that way. Uh, and, and I'm so glad I got to do all the seasons I did in the minors because it prepared me for that moment. And, and having Steve there and having his sense of humor be similar to mine, the reviews were, hey, they sound like they've done this for a long time together. And I was extremely grateful for that. It's interesting. I think there are some people who are more than qualified and ready and they don't get that break. But I think a lot of us, when we're younger and up and coming, are frustrated by the opportunities we don't get. And then when we get older and we get them, we look back and say, oh, I wasn't ready. I didn't know I wasn't ready, but I wasn't. And so yeah. sometimes you can't get too in your head about it's taking too long or I, I need to already be doing X and Y because the things that you're working on might actually be necessary to succeed versus getting those opportunities too early and just completely blowing them. Yeah, um, that's I, hard I to just, know. I've known for a while that uh, there's this NBA announcer and I don't I actually don't want to mention the name because he, he doesn't know how much he helped me, but, uh, and I haven't actually talked to him since I owe him an email because I went back and looked at the thread, but he wrote me while I was doing basketball at high point university uh, a number of years ago while I was going to law school. And I sent him a tape and he said to me, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. What you're describing is great, but you sound boring. Basically was his comment to me. And I read my email that I wrote back to him back. And it was like, it wasn't aggressively. So it was cordial, but it was defensive. Yeah. And I read it back and I try to tell people nowadays not to be defensive. And I just read this like a week ago and I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I know why he didn't email me back, because I was trying to explain away the opposite of what he was telling me. And I just wasn't listening. I wasn't open minded to it. And then when right. I finally heeded his advice and understood that performance is tone as well, it was an absolute game changer for me, Sarah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe those of us now in a position to give advice should put that in it as we're giving it. I know the temptation will be to be defensive, but just take this right. Then you're just skipping that step. Yeah. Um, so I was reading another interview that you did, and it was such an interesting point that you made that you said that someone with a disability has the opportunity to surprise people every day. You have the chance to say, to change someone's mind. So there's that incredible perspective that probably offers people grace when they interact with you in ways that aren't ideal, right? The understanding that they might not know better so you can teach them. Balanced with almost every interview, it comes up that you get frustrated at airports because people are always trying to help you or you get frustrated in general by people presuming that you need help. So how do you balance those two things, understanding that a lot of people will feel worse not offering help and will wonder if you're looking at them saying, why don't you offer me help? Right. Yeah. Versus versus saying, I don't need it. But how do how do they know you don't Right. that that balance? What ends up coming back, like I think about earlier in the conversation where I come back to on my best days is we're both humans and like on a human level, if they knew me and I knew them, we wouldn't be doing this dance. Right. And so it's about curiosity and asking questions like what what made that person want to help? And we don't have the opportunity to do that in our speedy lives. 
but to know that when you do have those chances to ask those questions and the the more we travel, the more we know that we're all so the same and anybody trying to get us to buy that we should hate this person or that person or dislike or distrust or whatever, they're usually wrong. They're usually just trying to sow seeds of doubt and hatred to for their own gain. Uh, the more we understand that if we're curious about people around us, we're going to find common ground so often that I remind myself of that on my good days. And sometimes I do get frustrated and I just have to walk away or I start to boil because I'm low on sleep and I'm not controlling myself well enough. But what I ended up thinking on those best days is, is they're just a person who has a heart. Right. That's it. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, it also goes back to something you said before where I can imagine that for you, you're you're walking through the airport thinking about what gate to get to and what game you have next and and you need to figure out x and y and where's the rental car and when someone stops you to interrupt to say that they want to help even if it's well intentioned you're again reminded that you're not just the average person going about your day and that could be frustrating right if you're if you lose sight or or aren't constantly thinking about the ways in which you're different to always be reminded of it even when you don't need help as you just did no, yeah. I, I no, it's that's it. That's exactly what it is, right? That's that's the crazy part about it is that uh even when it's productive, it's not productive, but it is because it can help other people. And and for me, what I've learned is it's up to me to be able to train my focus so hard that when that happens, I can get back onto what I was thinking about. Yeah. Like, I'm happy that that skill is something that I've gained. I wouldn't have chosen to gain it in the way that I have. But to turn it inward and try to make yourself better is what we all should do anyway. Absolutely. Uh, We're talking about the White Sox gig. Um, My biggest frustration or fear when I start a new gig is logistics. I'm not worried about what I know or how I'm going to perform or or do my job. It's where do we meet, what time, who am I meeting with, what are the chairs like, you know, what's the camera angle like. So when you start with the White Sox, what were the biggest things for you? Was it about do I know enough? Can I do the job? Was it about um, being received by people who are probably prone to hate anybody new who takes over a job for something that they've been listening to forever. What were the, what were your biggest concerns? Uh, my, my biggest, I don't think it was a concern. I think I felt like, Hey, I, you know, I can do baseball. I I've done it for long enough that I trust my way of doing baseball. It was more, uh, how am I going to learn the major league level? You know, and and how am I going to do it, especially in 81 games? Because the first two years I was only doing home games and I wasn't traveling with the team. So it was like, okay, when the team's home, I'm in the clubhouse, I'm jamming, I'm getting to know these guys, and then they go away for a week. And then, well, they come back and I catch up, and then it's day three, and now I'm getting into some deeper stories. And you got to, one of the fears was, am I talking too much? Because am I trying to do 162 games in 81? Right. right. Uh, and then the other component is I'm from a different generation, just in terms of age, than both my partner and the guy I was replacing, Hawk Harrelson, or eventually did replace. Uh, and 
So how are people going to react to that version of baseball? And it wasn't a fear as much as how can I make people understand that I also appreciate baseball history and I'm just not the millennial stat guy coming in because it's easy. This is going to shock you, but, you know, people can perceive things as we've been (laughs) talking about. People can think like, oh, he's your local computer guy because he's got glasses and he's kind of uh, slender and talks about stats sometimes. How am I going to make sure that my stories stand out as well because people are going to latch on to the stat stuff whenever it happens because that telecast hadn't been doing much advanced analytics at all? Well, I mean, Hawk's favorite statistic is TWTW, the will to win. So that's an interesting thing to follow. Well, so there's that. There's replacing sort of a legend like Hawk, who is a very specific type. And then there's just in general establishing who you are. So how much of what you decided as as you started your gig with the White Sox was just, I'm going to do what I've always done. This is what got me here versus I need to figure out what my brand is or cultivate a personality so that people who are listening say, oh, Jason Benetti, he's the guy that's X or Y. And it, it was much more, I need to get better every day. And I need to figure out what it is. And now I sound like a college football coach. <laughs> uh, I just got to get better every day. We're grinding in practice. Yep, but it literally was, okay, let me evaluate this homestand. What was missing? What can I do better? What needs to be in my scorebook? What doesn't? What that fit in the minors doesn't fit up here? How can I gather more information in a smarter way? And I, I really do think if you do that, your brand is whatever it is. But but you can surprise people on a daily basis and entertain them on a daily basis over the course of a baseball season. And I think the best baseball shows, people don't know what's coming. Yeah, I mean, it, it because it can become very, like, rhythmic and, and the same, that when you surprise them, that's, yeah, that's... If they tune in and they think, I don't know what I'm going to see tonight, you've done your job. Uh, I, I believe that that's I'll find something interesting from here this evening. I think that's what we all want to do on yeah. some level. You want to learn too, I think. <clears throat> yeah. Who, who are the broadcasters that you that you liked on the major league level that you listened to when you were getting started or when you were trying to find your voice? Uh, right now, I mean, Len Casper with the Cubs is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I think the world of Len uh, and his curiosity. Uh, Brian Anderson with the Brewers, who also works for TNT and CBS, is just a brilliant man. Uh, he's such a caring soul and so carefully thoughtful about everything he does on the air and so brilliantly kind to the crew. I, everybody should want to be like Brian Anderson. Um, I think that all the Giants guys are fantastic. Uh, the Mets telecast, I've gotten to know their producer just a little bit recently, and, and Gary Cohen as well. Uh, their telecast is, is uh, excellent, and they're, they're the type that surprises you every night. Yeah. Um, and there, there are a bunch of others, but I tend to like people who are curious and uh, thoughtful and bring you something different. Agreed. Very much so. Uh, 224 game broadcasts this year. That is what your current schedule looks like. So how, first of all, do you do that? And then why? (laughs) 
and then what's the what's the most difficult part about doing 200 plus games in a year uh the most difficult part is knowing that you're giving everything to every game and you have to require that of yourself and that's why i'm glad i went to law school because it was like, all right, this block of time is for law school. And I need to make sure that that now I really do sound like a college football coach intentionally, <laughs> but you have to structure it to know that it's getting into your day. And so that keeping that up for the, the time frame I require myself to do, it's not 100%, but I, I like to think I'm very close to it. And I always think about they could find somebody else who's doing that one game this week. If I don't provide the same care and detail for this game as my third game of the week, I'm doing it wrong, and I'm very replaceable. Yeah. And then I I wonder also um, what you give up in terms of family, social life, girlfriends, everything else, by being on the road all the time and being so devoted to this. Is it is it something where it's still such a passion that life-work balance isn't important, or um, – or are you waiting till later in your career to find some life work balance? Yeah, no, I, when I'm home, especially during the football season, like Monday through Thursday, I try to wrangle friends as much as possible to go social eat or whatever. But it's, it's hard to have a book club when you're like, all right, can we meet the first Tuesday in June, right. the third Wednesday in July? And I don't <laughs> care about the rest of your schedules. Right. Um, so I think my close friends understand that. And the great thing about the job in the off season is with ESPN, I end up in parts of the country where friends of mine live. And so I just try to, as much as I can, when I'm in town for a game, either go a little bit earlier in the day and spend the day with some friends of mine. I, I seek that out as much as possible. Yeah, it's, it's important. Um, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask to, you know, I, uh, I asked you to go speak to, uh, a group of, of young kids, and I know you probably get asked all the time to speak to um, aspiring broadcasters or, or young people with CP who, who don't yet know what they want to do but want to be inspired by someone so successful. Um, how do you balance the, all those requests with what you have time for or maybe even what serves you versus uh, what slows you down? So uh, I was so lucky to do multiple years of Big Ten games at ESPN with Jim Calhoun, the Hall of Fame basketball coach. And uh, Jim and I had this great bit where he would speak something in uh, garbled Boston English, and I would translate <laughs> it for the viewers. Uh, and <laughs> he, he's a wonderful guy, I, I joke. Uh, I learned so much about basketball from watching games and practices with Jim Calhoun, and his son remains a very good friend of mine. Um, but what I gained most from Jim Calhoun, and I will cherish this forever, is that anytime somebody asked him for a picture or an autograph when we were leaving an arena or coming into an arena, he would say yes. I never saw him say no ever once. And I don't say that out of hyperbole. It is zero. He, he never said no. And for me, I, I do get requests. And sometimes I have to say, let's do it in a week or let's do it in a month or whatever. But to be in a job where I could spend, say, something as, as pithy and small as five minutes with somebody and, and make their day feel different why would you ever say no to that? 
Right. And I, I, when I'm busy, I remind myself that those five minutes would have meant the world to me as a kid. And it's important. It really is. Uh, and, and I say that very deeply in my heart uh, because it's, I learned it from Jim and, and I will take it forever. Uh, what are your big goals? You, you've achieved the thing that you most wanted to do in your 30s. So what's next? What, what are the either games or events or things that you want to do in the future? Hmm. Um, I want to do the spelling bee at some point. Nice. I think that would be grand fun. Uh, I mentioned John Mulaney earlier. I'd love to meet him. Yeah. Uh, I think I would like to do improv at some point. Nice. Uh, just to test it out and see if I'm actually funny when I'm supposed to be funny rather <laughs> than like obliquely funny. Right. And I, I want to travel a lot more. I've gotten the bug for traveling to Europe and uh, have gone each of the last couple of years, starting with an ESPN trip actually to Dublin for a football game. But I, nice. I, um, I, that's something I want to do is travel uh, as much as I possibly can. And, and I'm always on the hunt to learn more about the author, David Foster Wallace, uh, because I think I'm, I'm sad that I never got to meet him, but his uh, vocabulary and his intelligence were remarkable. All right, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. That's right. It's time for the Spanish Inquisition, which is brought to you by Tiso. Tiso, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tisoshop.com. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions that everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Desert Island album, and I can only have one. Uh, it is Guster's Lost and Gone Forever. Oh, throwback. I haven't listened to Guster in a while. That makes me want to go pull it out and listen. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Habit or quality contributed most? Uh, it's a persistence to the point of uh, frustration of others. <laughs> uh, <laughs> number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My biggest failure, uh, it's not understanding at an earlier age that being organized was so important. Mm, that's huge, especially for prep, for work. Yeah, it you, was just you a You finally myth. figure out the system and then you're like, this is much easier and better. Yes. <laughs> when I put the work in beforehand. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No, you would know because I would be dead. <laughs> uh, number five, uh, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? If I could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? It would be, hmm, oh, that's tough. I have a couple, but I, I really do. Can it, can it be somebody who was dead? Who's dead oh, now? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, it, it, I, I would want to be in the mind of Robin Williams. Oh, okay. That would be frenetic yeah. and exhausting, yes. but interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it was, I mean, I, I imagine it was exhausting for him as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it sure sounds like it was at yeah, times, yeah. which is unfortunate. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, man. Uh, hmm. 
That's tough. Uh, it, it could either. So, okay. So I was in uh, junior high and we were playing kickball in science class. And I don't know why, <laughs> but I, I teacher was hung over. Yeah, probably. Right. <laughs> so I kicked a ball and the teacher trying to help decided to pick me up and run to first with me. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I was embarrassed at the time. I mean, I kind of like swatted him away, I think I recall. But uh, I, I liked the guy a lot, but I, that moment was not fun. Yeah, not, not his best moment. Um, seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, my ability to be a morning person. Oh, me too. It's brutal. Yeah. You don't have too much. You don't have like a lot of day games and stuff, so you at least do most of your work at night. Yeah, day game after a night game, though, I have to like shock my system. <laughs> a thousand cups of coffee. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, number eight, if you could be commish for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to? Oh, man. That's so hard. Uh, because I... It, oh, jeez. <laughs> it would be that uh, everybody who had, no, that didn't, that wasn't going to go the right, uh, this is going to be simple and basic, but I think if we made sure that everybody had an assigned lane that they drove in, in traffic, <laughs> we would never have traffic again. Interesting. So there are there are lanes for each person. That seems complicated. <laughs> but but it's less complicated than veering in and out, I think. So that's, you get on great. and you have 50 feet for you to get into lane two that day. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. Right. But I do think all of the merging is the problem. Merging is a problem. But so is uh, people who drive slow. Uh, yeah. Which requires Ooh, me to merge. That was a window into the soul, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have trouble doing anything slowly. I'm very impatient. So yeah. I'm I'm often the merger, the swerver, the person who's veering around, the person who's barely going the speed limit. It's something I'm working on. So you basically said that it would be very difficult to implement because you're already lobbying against it. Yeah, because you've you've put me in lane two and lane two <laughs> happens to have a slow person in it on this day and there's no fix for it. And then I'm going to lose my mind. So, yeah. I love the anger that was <laughs> oh, in this yeah. hypothetical situation. <laughs> I'm getting anxious just thinking about being stuck there with no recourse. It's killing me. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Most scared I've ever been. Uh, it's been a couple times. I do not enjoy walking uh, around upper decks of stadiums mm. because of my walk. I tend to think I'm going to pitch forward and and plummet to my death. So uh, I am always scared when I'm walking without a rail at the top of a stadium. That's very smart. That seems like a good place to be scared. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Uh, creative, empathetic, and uh, daring. Mm. Those are good. The bonus listener question. 
if you could be really great at one thing for one day, like the very best at it for one day, what would it be? Uh, singer songwriter. Mm. Who's one of your favorites other than Guster? So, uh, I saw Elton John in concert a couple years ago and I know he doesn't write his own songs, but like, um, Love Jim Croce, Cat Stevens, Harry Chapin, that sort of genre. Nice. You're an old soul. The old the old school folk. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who do you recommend I talk to? Who do you rec who do I recommend that you talk to? Uh I, I don't think a lot of people know him, but he works at ESPN. He's he's doing football and basketball and some college baseball. He also works for the Orioles as a as a radio announcer, and he used to be my broadcast partner in Syracuse for a couple of years. His name's Kevin Brown. He always gets questions about his sinker, and he doesn't have one. And uh, he's super intelligent. It was. So exhilarating working with him for a couple years because we just kind of got each other. And I think he's an up and coming future star or current star, honestly, in this industry. So uh, he people should know about him because his brain is is pretty magical. Awesome. Well, your brain is pretty magical. It's awesome talking to you. And uh, hopefully we'll actually meet in person sometime uh, it sounds like we would. It sounds like we would be friends, other than the driving part, which we'll have to disagree to disagree. We'll uh, we'll Uber. Back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. We all know hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com/said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. Today, it's over-eager waiters. You know, the ones who take your wine glass and there's still another sip or two left. They're always hovering, trying to grab your plate, despite the fact that you both have eyeballs and you both can see that there's still food on it. And if you're like me, you always save a little bit of your favorite thing on the plate for your last bite, which means when they're trying to take your plate, they're trying to take the best part right out from under you. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. And it's especially egregious at places like tapas restaurants or other spots where you're sharing a bunch of stuff with the table. Because then you're doing that little dance where everyone has a couple bites and then you're sort of staring at what's left, waiting to see who's going to finish it. And then if it's been long enough without anyone taking a bite, then you think, okay, I can now be the one to finish this off. And I would much rather stare at a slightly empty or not quite empty plate for a few minutes too long than have it yanked out from under me while I'm still eating or considering eating it. So chill out, waiters. And of course, it's worth reminding you at this moment that these waiters are far less of a problem than people who are assholes to them, even if they do take your plate too early. If you're on a date with someone and they're rude to the waiter 
or the valet or barista or ticket taker, anybody else in the service industry, just cut your losses and walk out right there before you even order anything or before they've paid. Just get the hell out of there because how you treat people in the service industry is probably the best indicator of your true character. It could be that you're super condescending and you pull that better than you crap, or it could be the over the top demands and sending things back and asking for things that go above and beyond reasonable expectations for dining out. Any of those is a problem. They're all foul and they're all signs of a person who's either super powerful and entitled and can never be told no or totally powerless and using the waiter as the one opportunity to feel in control. Either way, that person sucks and you do not want to be involved in them anyway. Get out now because whatever that behavior is, it's going to show up in other places too. And you can tell a lot about somebody by how they treat a waiter. Okay, feel good about what we accomplished today. Waiters, I know it's your job to clear stuff and try to keep tables moving, but don't take my alcohol or my food until I'm done with it, okay? But also, you're doing a great job, and a big tip is coming your way, and I didn't really need that last sip of wine anyway, so you're fine. There, I fixed it. This week's listener dilemma comes from Lord Huesos, a.k.a. at M. Granadosov on Twitter. He says, I buy an official tour T-shirt whenever I go to a concert. I'm about to turn 37, and people say, I'm too old to be wearing metal band shirts to work. It's become a common thing the more concerts I go to. So my problem is, should I punch these people when they say that or set them on fire to some black metal? Okay, well, we're not going to set anyone on fire, regardless of how rude they are. That seems a bit extreme. And punching people is also not the answer. Violence is almost never the answer. There are very, very, very few occasions in life where violence is the answer, and this is not one of them. I will say this. I hope your job is a job where wearing a metal band t-shirt is appropriate. If that is the case, then f*** them. Who cares what they think? Judgment about what people wear and dress and how they do their hair and their makeup is very 90s. It really is. We've moved past that. To each their own. Don't stare at people who look different. Embrace the fact that they have the chutzpah and the onions to be themselves, even if it isn't something that the rest of society has approved or deems cool. So I say wear your t-shirts and love them, and you will connect with people who are also into whatever these metal bands that you like are, and you will have that common thing that gets a conversation started, and you may make new friends. And to anybody who thinks that you're a dork or too old or whatever for wearing them, them. that's what I say. Listener dilemmas are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate and review and leave your dilemma in the review and I'll get to it in a future podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 